Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guests today are Ed Hagem, author and former foster youth in Massachusetts, Aaron Neesmith, founder and lead coach at Grow Into You Foundation in Florida, and Cheryl Williams, executive director of Fundamentals for Foster Care, located in Texas. Welcome, everybody, to the Aging Out Institute podcast series. I am so glad that you could join us today. I'm going to start the podcast by asking everybody to please share a little bit about themselves and their organization. And I think I'll start, Erin, with you. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Erin Neesmith, and I am from Grow Into You Foundation, which is in Tampa, Florida. Wonderful. And what's your primary focus of your organization? We focus on life coaching and mentoring, as well as housing for teens that are aging out of foster care, ages 18 to 23. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And Ed? I guess I'm an example of what you're talking about. I spent my youth in five different foster homes and a couple of orphanages and a bunch of hotel rooms and motel rooms. Graduated from college, got a master's degree in business, spent 50 years on Wall Street, and ended up as the chairman of the board of trustees at the University of Rochester and have basically concentrated my efforts on convincing foster kids that anything is possible, that education is the solution. I've written two books, both of which sort of bring these things to fore. Wonderful. I definitely want to make sure that we cover the titles of those as we go through the podcast. Cheryl, I'll hand things off to you. My name is Cheryl Elizabeth Williams, and I am the founder of a nonprofit based in Texas called Fundamentals for Foster Care. Like Ed shared, I was in foster care myself. I actually aged out without being adopted, and it took me 10 years to complete my bachelor's degree, but I did graduate from K-State with a 4.0, and so I understand the unique challenges that aging out foster youth face. And I majored in early child education, and so I started the nonprofit first to provide STEAM toys, science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics toys to give kids in foster care something to take with them when they're going from so many different homes. But then just last year, we started having this aging out support for foster youth, and it's a mentoring program as well. Thank you so much for joining us. What we're talking about is how to help young people who are aging out of foster care or who have recently aged out develop coping skills. And the first question that I want to ask is just to make sure we're all on the same page. What are coping skills? How would you define it? I'll open it up to whoever would like to give that a shot. For my youth, I try and help them learn the process of being able to in any given moment, focus themselves on their thinking and shifting perspectives. So for our youth, shifting their perspective and empowering themselves so they don't feel like the world is doing something to them, but they get to decide what they do in the world, that I can't change their circumstance, but I can help them change the way that they see it. So the ability to shift and be flexible in their situation as well as empower themselves instead of feeling at the effect of things that are happening to them, 
And then finally, hope, giving them hope and helping them see that even though right now feels a certain way, we can move out of that place and that we can have hope for what can come in the future, how we can overcome. So all those things that lead to overcoming and resilience. If I can summarize, it sounds like what you're saying is involved is really flexibility, optimism, and understanding that what happens in life happens because of choices. Yes, for sure. I've tried to give foster youth or first gens, as I call them, the concept that there is a language you can use with yourself, which will help you cope. And I give them four words that I think they should focus on. Passions, principles, partners, and plans. I obviously call it the four Ps. And I spend time having given them these the foundation so that the conversation with themselves becomes much more uniform and doesn't wander as much. But I also believe, as Aaron said, I think it's very important that we have them recognize that anything is possible. I also try to pass on that some of their disadvantages are actually advantages. I could spend time on that if you want. Sure. We'll get into that in a moment when we get to strategies. So I think we've got kind of a sense of what coping skills are, and these come into play when young people are facing some kind of challenge, some kind of adversity potentially, or unexpected changes in their plans. And so I'm thinking specifically of these young people that we're talking about, young people in foster care, older youth who have aged out. What are some of the common challenges do these folks face in regard to utilizing coping skills? Is it that they haven't been taught coping skills? Is it something about their situations that prevent them from using coping skills? How would you explain that? I'll answer that one. Older or former foster youth face a unique set of challenges when it comes to building effective coping skills. They may have experienced trauma, loss, and instability, which can make it difficult for them to develop healthy coping mechanisms. Additionally, they may have missed out on important developmental milestones that can impact their emotional well-being. When helping youth who are aging out of foster care learn coping skills, it's important to not only build a strong foundation of trust and support, but also to help them develop confidence in their own abilities. Many youth who have experienced foster care may have been in situations where they were not given the opportunity to make decisions for themselves or advocate for their own needs. As a result, they may feel uncertain or lack confidence in their own judgments. To help youth build trust in their own abilities, it can be helpful to provide them with opportunities to make choices and practice decision-making. This can be done in a supportive and non-judgmental environment where they can explore their options and learn from their mistakes. By empowering them to make their own decisions, they can gain a sense of control over their lives and develop a stronger sense of self-efficacy. Additionally, it is important to help youth develop independence and self-sufficiency. This can involve providing them with resources and support to learn important life skills such as budgeting, cooking, and job searching. By developing these skills, youth can gain a greater sense of autonomy and feel more prepared to handle the challenges of adulthood. In summary, building trust and support are essential in helping youth aging out of foster care learn coping skills. However, it is equally important to help them develop confidence in their own abilities and become more independent. By providing them with opportunities to make decisions and learn important life skills, we can empower them to become more self-reliant and better equipped to handle life's challenges. 
Some of the most powerful strategies for helping youth aging out of care learn to cope with life's challenges include teaching healthy behaviors to cope with stress, cognitive behavioral therapy, and EMDR. These strategies can help youth develop a greater sense of self-awareness, manage their emotions more effectively, and build resilience in the face of trauma. Resilience and optimism play a vital role in coping skills as youth who are more resilient and optimistic tend to be more equipped to handle life's problems. Building resilience and optimism can involve focusing on positive self-talk, setting achievable goals, and practicing gratitude. Relationships are also incredibly important when helping youth cope by having supportive and caring adults in their lives that can feel more confident in their abilities, build trust, and develop healthy interpersonal skills. To others who work with youth aging out of care who are struggling with how to cope with the challenges they face, my advice would be to focus on building a strong foundation of trust and support as well as providing resources and opportunities for skill building and personal growth. It is also important to be patient, empathetic, and non-judgmental as youth may be dealing with a range of complex emotions and experiences. Okay, that's fantastic. So those are all things that I definitely want to touch on. That was a great summary. Thank you very much, Cheryl. So Cheryl's brought up a lot of different things that that we want to talk about today. So let's go back to the challenges. And Cheryl, you mentioned something about that youth often are not given the opportunity to make decisions. So I'll throw that to Erin or Ed. Is that a key component in the, say, the lack of coping skills that young people may have? And I'm not saying that all youth in foster care don't have coping skills, but for those who struggle with it, where do you think it's coming from? I see a lot of my kids come out with a lot of learned behavior as a result of being raised by a system. So when they are reaching 18, I say that unfortunately they've been raised by what feels like a quitting culture where your case manager might quit, your therapist might quit, your foster parent can quit at a moment's notice. And so they that ability to persevere and to have that determination to see something all the way through, that is something that they really have to start to build that muscle. That muscle is not really strong for them. And it's not that they can't do it. It's just that they need lots of practice and they need a lot of time and space and grace to be able to build that muscle. So that is something that when they start to realize that These aren't necessarily things that are within them, that they don't have perseverance, that they can't see something all the way through. That's not something that isn't in them. It's just not something they've been taught or something they've been given opportunity to learn, grow, make mistakes, and start to become. Okay. And you want me to add to that? I think there's. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ed. I think there's a big change in the coping skill requirements when you leave a foster home. No, it's I think that the requirements of handling the foster care experience versus the jumping off the cliff, as I call it, into the real world requires what I think Cheryl and Aaron are providing. I'm involved in a group at, in Boston called Wiley, which does the same thing, requires foster kids to report in once a week to a counselor. I think all the things that we've said, Cheryl did an excellent job and Aaron did too, describing the needs. But I think the most important need is to have someone to talk to. When these, whatever comes up, there's someone there who's interested in you and will basically help guide you through whatever problems would occur. Of course, in the case of COVID, these poor kids had no place to go. And so Wiley provided places for them. Whatever it might be, 
or it's as one woman said, you know, one of our her foster kids wanted just to buy cosmetics and didn't have the money for it. I personally feel one of the main requirements is that 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 transition, the 18, 17, 18, 19 type tra- transition, there are a whole series of things that have to be provided, one of which is financial support. Giving someone financial support at that point in time is extremely important, especially that allows them to go some kind of educational experience and also to decide what kind of educational experience the child has possibilities. In other words, I'm as enthusiastic about academic efforts as I am vocational efforts. And in fact, I'm spending a lot of time on vocational efforts right now, which basically provide as much satisfaction as some of the academic efforts. I'm also a big proponent of the trades and vocational training as well. It sounds like what I'm hearing from the group is that you need to provide opportunities for young people to practice making decisions, dealing with challenges, and if things don't go well based on their decision, then you know how do you then handle that and make a better decision in the future? I think that's you're kind of implying some of those things. But I have a question about this quitting culture that was mentioned. Is that specific to foster youth? Because I'm wondering if it's something that younger people in general are learning as in the entire society, because what I've heard is that younger people, jobs specifically is what I'm thinking of, is they're just quitting. They don't like something that happens. They just quit and go find another job. And so I'm just wondering, is it really just foster youth or is it maybe the generation? Quitting culture or the tendency to give up on tasks or goals prematurely is non-specific to foster youth. However, foster youth may be more likely to experience challenges that make it difficult to persist in their goals, such as frequent placement changes or lack of support from caregivers. It is important to provide resources and support to help foster youth overcome these challenges and develop resilience to succeed in their goals. Yeah, so it doesn't help that there might be a quitting culture developing among younger youth in general, but they have these extra challenges in their lives and extra trauma that they have to deal with as well. For sure. I think that a lot of them have experienced a lot of abandonment. And so that being, you know, a trigger for them, whether it's I might self-sabotage and abandon something before it abandons me, or if that is just this unconscious learned behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like coping skills, it's not something that you just take them into a classroom, right? And say, okay, we're going to learn coping skills today. And this is how you cope with things. It sounds like it's something that you have to teach as part of everything else that is being done to support these youth. You know, the mentoring, the building the relationships, the education and helping them set goals and achieving education, making sure that they have good housing and stable housing, and the life skills development, all these things that you've mentioned. Please tell me if I'm right. I do believe that I am, that this is something that you really need to just incorporate into everyday conversations as these other supports are happening. I think one of the things you have to focus on is the fact that these are individuals. That's what I said. Having someone to talk to, having a counselor, there are 75 kids in Boston report into Wiley on a regular basis. And there are 27 other organizations that I've come across across the country that do similar things. But the child, the, the foster person basically can talk about anything. And they're all unique. And the problems, I think Lynn and Cheryl both admit that each one of them have unique problems. Some can cope in certain areas. They can't cope in other areas. And it's 
I think the counselor, the mentor is so important in this characteristic so they can cope with a particular problem at a particular time. And get to know the young person. Get to know so the young they, person. Yeah. Essentially, what we're, sat, we're basically trying to create parents again, good parents, you know, and that's essentially what we need is someone who really is interested. The word believe is something that I pass on. You must believe. You must believe that it can be done. And that's what optimism, my books, On the Road Less Traveled, and the, the Island of the Four Ps are all about anything is possible. And I'm living proof of it. You know, I'm old enough to brag a little bit about that, but I'm living proof that almost <laughs> anything is possible because I personally had as many disadvantages as anyone could have. And by the way, one of the things that I think Lynn and Aaron, probably, Gerald and Aaron do quite a bit of is they cope with failure. And I keep trying to convince young people that early failure is a gift and that you can fail and pop yourself back up again. Once you do that, you've gained an enormous capability. For sure. I actually talk about the phrase investing in failure with donors and supporters because I need people to understand that our youth need to be allowed to fail without us pulling the rug out from under them when they do, that they need that opportunity just like younger children do to be able to try things and fail. They were not given that opportunity sometimes for them to become successful like Cheryl and Ed that are living testaments of it, we need to give them kind of a soft place to land when they go and try things, when they risk, when they put themselves out there and step out of their comfort zone. The thing that Ed mentioned that I really liked is the relationship part, you know, that building the relationship and really getting to know them because my conversations, the best conversations where we're building resilience and we're building those muscles of overcoming the conversations we have on the way to a job interview or the conversation we have when it's 10 o'clock at night and they called me about a problem they're having and then I'm able to speak in because they've invited me into that. So I think that those relationships and the conversation that those opportunities to parent, they're very organic and they're very natural. Right. But you don't always want to give the answers to them, right? As parents, we want to give these young people the opportunity to think through options, to think through consequences, and then to make that decision. I think it's easy for adults to say, yeah, we'll just do that mm -hmm. and you'll be fine. But that doesn't really help them as much as letting them go through that process. For sure. That is vital. It's the whole essence of my second book, basically. The two people talking in my second book, one is a young man and then a young lady. And the second person is not a teacher. He's a guide, basically getting the individuals to answer their own questions in the four areas that I present. I think it's very important that they teach them how to make decisions, not tell them what's right and wrong. Fundamentals for foster care has assisted in the transition to adulthood have experienced homelessness, and some have developed a habit of asking for money as a means of survival. This can result in low self-esteem due to the challenges they have faced, but with the right support and resources, they can develop the skills they need to achieve their goals and build a brighter future. I mean, some of those skills can include financial literacy, job readiness, communication and interpersonal skills, problem solving, self-advocacy. Building these skills can help foster youth develop confidence and resilience and increase their chances of success in the workforce and beyond. Additionally, having access to stable housing, health care, education, and mental health services can also be critical in supporting foster youth as they transition to adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, you bring up a good point about all of these skills that we're mentioning, resiliency, optimism, and so forth. These are so intangible, right? (laughs) And so my question is, how do you help staff provide consistency in so far as how you're teaching young people the process of building these skills, right? Making decisions, seeing how it goes, talking them through it. How do you get staff on the same page when something like resilience and optimism is really so intangible? In our organization, we are focusing on positive childhood experiences, which is related to ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. The new research that's coming out about positive childhood experiences really focuses on certain regular benchmarks or regular things that happen in a child's life that are healthy and that nurture them to be able to grow. And though a lot of our older youth, they have missed out on those opportunities. So when I am educating a mentor on how to work with one of our kids, it starts with that building the relationship and also giving them these opportunities that are PCEs, we call them, which is having the ability to call someone up on the phone like Ed was talking about and have a conversation, being able to participate in traditions and community events. It seems like those things are disconnected, like everything has to be a serious discussion. But (laughs) really and truly, those are the building blocks for them to be able to learn that resilience. So teaching and educating those who are working with them to embrace these opportunities to join them, not tell them what to do, but to join them, walk alongside them, be open and available for them, that those are the kinds of things that our kids need so that they can walk down that path of becoming optimistic and resilient. And how important is role modeling in these relationships, I'm thinking in particular? How important really is it to role model coping skills? Can I go back to what Aaron said is so important, pointing out to young people where they have been successful and then delving into that arena, you can find a passion or a skill or something can take them to the next level. I I think your question, your next question is a good one as well. Yeah. Asset-based focus, you know, what do they have to build on? What is right with them? What is good about them? That's often kind of the opposite of what has happened in foster care, where it's you know, these, what are you not doing? What should you be doing? Exactly. We could find something that they really are interested in or they really do well and emphasize that and show them that this is something that will carry them forward. I think that's one of the things you should do. For sure. But I think going back to modeling, I'm not big on hero worship, but I do believe that examples really help. Here's a kid that was four feet, 10, weighed 80 pounds, went to high school, you know, he had the orphanage symbol written all over his shirt and on his forehead, had the wrong clothes. Yeah, he still got there or she got there. And I think that's something that has been, again, the Horatio Alger Society sort of promotes that. Yeah. I'm thinking about how do you utilize this concept of role modeling? I think a lot of organizations hire former foster youth, mm-hmm. you know, folks that have had that lived experience that could show and help young people understand, look, I did it. I got through it. I'm building my life and you can too. Yeah. And our organization, we have two homes for kids who have aged out. And my family lives in the girls' home as a full-time anchor family. 
So just one example of that in real life is one of our girls, she was in a domestic violence relationship where they often had domestic disputes. And she actually, when we were talking about her process of getting out of that relationship, she said, I see what you have with Mr. Benjamin, my husband, and I don't have that kind of relationship. And that's what I want. I want a man who's going to treat me the way he treats you. We didn't do anything on purpose. We were just living our life alongside them. And that showed her that example. At our boys' home, the young man who is our anchor mentor at our boys' home, who's a single man, he's a kid who did grow up in our program since 16. He's lived in that house since it opened for aged out youth. And now he's an alumni who is living in that house to provide support and role modeling for our boys. So those are two different examples, but they work really beautifully in the environments that we're able to provide. Cheryl, I'll ask you from your perspective as a former foster youth, how important was that to you in your experience? Well, positive role modeling can be a powerful tool in supporting the development of foster youth. It's important to differentiate between role modeling and hero worshiping. You know, once they find out I've gone through it and the success I've had, it often feels like they create these unrealistic expectations and put pressure on them, like they have to emulate what I did. But instead, they have to develop their own strengths and skills. I mean, I asked them to write a whole essay on their goals and how we can support them as well as a timeline because otherwise it just feels like they expect that my organization can completely just save them from all of their troubles. And by actually really relating to what they're going through, nobody saved me. You know, I had to develop success through independence and that's what I try to teach them. It's the attitude of knowing when to provide guidance and support, but also allowing foster youth to develop their own sense of identity and autonomy. By providing a role model, it can help with, if you have a diverse set of role models, because there's all different backgrounds, and then it can offer different perspectives and insights. But I find that the biggest hope is actually not feeling sorry for them. I feel like so many people just, you know, hear this horrible sob story And while I relate, and it's certainly challenging, it's just I know that they have to do it on their own, and we can teach them to do it on their own, but it's still up to them, their success. Right. I wonder how much of a challenge it is with these young people who maybe have been in foster care a long time, or of course, they're coming out of traumatic situations. How many young people have to get themselves out of a victim mindset or expect people to carry them through their lives? And so I'll just pose that question. That's one of my real high-level statements. Never be a victim. And I put that out to young people on a regular basis. And I tell them, you can always be a victim and use the energy in the wrong direction. So you've got to take that energy and use it on what's next. And that's really key. What's next is not easy. But being a victim is never never profitable. It never does anything for you. And I proved that a number of times in my lifetime in a couple of my books, showing that because I focused on what's next, I went on and it actually was very successful. And silly things and important things, focusing on being a victim really is worthless in many respects. And I come very strong on that point. 
Yeah, I will say though, I think it depends because some people who are very good at living with this victim mentality can get other people to do things for them because they make them feel bad for them. And for them, that might be what their goal is, right? (laughs) And from where our perspective, it really doesn't get you anywhere because you're not going to be fully successful in life. But some people want to be carried. So how do you help young people break out of that mindset? I don't know how you have them break out of that, but I'll tell you what I did. And I can recommend any young person trying it at 18 years old. When I went across the river from orphanage to university, I buried my background. I would not tell anybody. It came a little, little dark and mysterious and a little bit of denial never hurts because I didn't have to explain where I came from. I, just, I was that person and the people didn't accept me. That was okay. So I think it's important to recognize it. And I, I recommend this to Harry Alger people. It's different today. Some people let it all hang out and it works for them. But I think that a little bit of denial just sort of, because then you don't get sympathy and you don't get any extra and it's important. I think what Ed said, I asked the question to my kids, is it working for you? And if it's working for you, okay, you can ride that wave, right? But when it's not working for you, when you see that maybe the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of changing, then you'll come to me and we can coach through what those new opportunities are for you. So sometimes kids have to be where they are and they're not ready to move out of it. But when they are ready, there's always the opportunity to grow and learn so that they can move into a new space in their mindset. So is it working for you? How would you like to do it differently? Those are like little catchphrases I try to give to them so that when they're on their own, maybe I'm I'm not available. I'm not answering the phone. I'm not going to be the person who can fix your problem. I don't have the resources to be able to do it. I can ask those kinds of questions to get them thinking about what they can do for themselves. Let's brainstorm seven new ways you can do this instead of the way you've been doing it that's not working anymore. Garen, that's right on because you want to give them a vocabulary they can use with it for themselves. Yeah. They'll go back to it each time. And I, I have these eight words I use. One of which is self, by the way. One of the things I don't, we don't spend enough time on is having to understand that part of their problem is their genes and then the experience, the interplay between their genes and their experiences. And they develop that develops the person. If you understand that, then you can recognize why you're angry, why things don't work for you. And you'll accept it more easily when you accept that this is who you are. And I pitch that to young people and the lights come on. Mom was a, oh, dad was an angry young man or dad didn't do this. Then they recognize that's something that's embedded and I have to cope with it. I found that the homeless mindset begs for money and gives excuses for homelessness while successful people give excuses for their success. You know, like Ed and and Aaron, it's like we would have a long list of how we got to where we did by the positive. I actually just try to explain that to them of like they often are in the begging mind state. And I feel like they actually even get some self-esteem from it. That's been their primary coping skill is getting people to pity them with this life story that they have that's true. But yeah, to turn it around into let's give reasons that you're going to be successful. Let's build up your own skills. You can do this. Yeah. And it's also a question of, for some young people, they might think that the former situation of having that victim mentality is the easier path to go down, right? Because it's tough. It's tough to make choices and deal with the consequences of those choices and to strive toward a goal. So it might be easier just to ask others to carry you through. 
And so I know one thing that I've heard my whole life is people generally won't change until they're uncomfortable. And when they're uncomfortable, like you were alluding to, Erin, when they're uncomfortable, then then they might think about changing. So it, that's not always the case, but that's often the case. So the question is, you know, how do you get young people to see beyond to the future and where they would like to be, you know, several years down the road versus just surviving? Because that's part of optimism, right? Is being able to picture their future. Yeah, for sure. Some of that them could be examples, you know, people that be either written or people they come in contact with and show them that this is what can be done. I also like for them to acknowledge the natural consequences that come. So if I'm not stepping in to change their circumstances or save them from their consequences that come with whatever decisions they're making, then that gives me an opportunity to help them acknowledge those circumstances, acknowledge the natural consequences that come from those decisions that they have made. And then that, again, propels them towards that doing it differently. Or what can I do now that I'm in this situation? What are my next steps? So I think the natural consequences of letting them experience those, not shielding them from those, is is super important. And that's hard, though, isn't it? It is. Because we want them to succeed. (laughs) So to let a young person fail, it goes against the grain. Yeah. So right now I have a young lady in my house. So we have a two-bedroom apartment that's in the back of the house, and they have their own kitchen. They have their own living room, own bathroom. And it's basically an adjoining door to our space. And one of the things that she, you know, food insecurity a lot of times is an issue that our kids have. But this girl has like learned a helplessness of somebody is just going to provide for me. I don't have to provide for myself. While I never want her to go hungry, we are having conversations about, yes, you can come in here and you can take our food. We never want you to be without. However, that's not giving you a skill that you can take out of this house. We need to work on together for you to understand how to provide for yourself, your grocery shopping, your food stamps, your food pantries, your asking us instead of just taking that's hard though, because what do I want to do? I just want to feed the girl. <laughs> you know? right, because right. My mom heart just wants to provide, but that's not giving her the tool that she needs. So it is extremely hard to step out of that role of mom and step into that role of coach where I'm not going to just provide it because it's here. I've got yeah. to teach you the skill. Right. But on the flip side for the adults, it would be easier just to give that young person what they want, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to taking the time to help teach them. Absolutely. So I think in some cases, some foster parents, some group home staff, it's just easier to tell kids what to do that would be the right decision in the moment, and it makes their lives easier. So the adults have to be willing to take on the time and the effort to do the teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, here are some reasons why letting a young person fail can be beneficial. One, it builds resilience. Experiencing failure and learning to overcome it can help young people build resilience and develop the skills they need to cope with challenges and setbacks in the future. Two, it fosters independence. Allowing young people to make mistakes and learn from them can help them develop a sense of independence and autonomy as they learn to take responsibility for their own successes and failures. Three, it promotes growth and learning. 
Failure can be a valuable learning opportunity as it provides young people with feedback and insights that can help them grow and improve in the future. Forward encourages risk-taking. Fear of failure can prevent young people from taking risks and pursuing their goals. Allowing young people to fail can help them overcome this fear and develop the confidence they need to take risks and pursue their dreams. Five, it builds character. Overcoming failure and learning from mistakes can help young people develop important character traits such as perseverance, determination, and self-reflection. So overall, while it can be difficult to see young people fail, it is important to recognize that failure is a natural part of the learning and growth process. By allowing young people to experience failure and learn from their mistakes, caregivers and adults can help them build resilience, foster independence, and promote growth and learning. Yep. Here, here. All of that. I think because I experienced so much failure, I actually am pretty good about letting people fail because, oh my gosh, I fail all the time still. And I feel like that's a huge part of developing confidence. I think the worst thing for me is if somebody does try to come in and hero save me and be my voice and they're all feeling good about themselves, but I'm feeling weak and helpless and dependent. So I actually, yeah, it's pretty easy for me to let people make their own decisions and help them with problem solving, but then it's ultimately their life. And I feel like that's actually really empowering. Absolutely. And I agree with that. I just wonder sometimes if the system itself lends itself to being, you know, leaning more toward doing everything for the youth, right? And it would take individual foster parents, individual group home staff to kind of step out of that. I don't know. I'm just a thought that I had is does the system itself not provide enough guidance, not provide enough expectation around helping youth with building the coping skills? Are you trying to say that the world is too comfortable? I don't know that the world is too comfortable. I think the system, when you have such a big system like this, they basically, I think there are rules put into place that make life easier for the system and or the adults versus really thinking about what helps the youth most. I think this is an overall problem. Again, you know, the previous generations went through very difficult times. We haven't had really difficult times in a very long time. I mean, I was born in the Depression, went through the First World War. The 60s weren't great. The 70s were terrible. So, you know, in the sense that you're right, things have become a little too comfortable. People ask me, well, I can't put my son or daughter in an orphanage. What should I do? And I said, Knowles, you know, outward bound, have them work, actually work summers. And some of these foster kids, I think you have to sort of tell them, this is your life. Show them completely that there's something that they can find and do and become proficient in. I think that will solve some of the problems. Yeah. And being able to see a lot of different examples of directions that they could go in. Because that's the other thing that young people don't get a lot of exposure to are all the options. What they know, they know social media influencers and they know celebrities, but really, do they know all of the other possible career options that are open to them? I just spoke at the Keys Community College in Key West, graduating 150 people, nurses, public safety officers, hospitality workers, divers, marine biologists. I mean, the happiest kids in the world. And they're all, you learn something that day they get out of school, they have a job and something they can contribute to. I had a very frustrating experience in the foster care system myself that lends it to failure. I mean, I feel like the system tries to provide all these resources of financial literacy and all this stuff, but 
Like I was not able to get a hold of my social worker when I needed to get her permission anytime I wanted to get a job. And I was trying to work three jobs to avoid homelessness. I was temporarily staying with my grandparents and they couldn't really afford to, to house me. And I was trying to get into college and it was so frustrating not being able to get a hold of my social worker. So I actually aged out early at the age of 17 just because I could get a job then. And and then I still was left homeless at 18 because I didn't get any of the support from the foster care system anymore. But it was like a part of me getting on my own as I had experienced homelessness because of the failures of the foster care system itself. Yeah. And I would say failures of the system and or the individuals that unfortunately you had connected to you. Because there are, there are young people that are very lucky with the foster parents or the group home that they get. But I would say maybe the majority aren't as lucky. Yeah, I'm very torn on this subject just because I've seen both, you know, I think of it, I used to be an educator. So I think of it as scaffolding where sometimes, you know, it's kind of like an I do, we do, you do kind of mentality where you don't just throw them out there and say, hey, figure it out on your own. But it's like, yes, I'm going to provide for you. And now we're going to work on, you know, you learning to provide that and we'll work on it together. And then I'm going to expect you to go and do it yourself because I've given you that model. We've walked through it together, but I've seen the system. We all have, we've seen the system both provide, like you said, you get kind of lucky with those parents or that home. And then I've also seen the system drop kids on their face when it was like, just the last step they needed to be able to do something good for themselves. Something as simple as, well, we've spent too much money on you, so we won't pay for your $12 ID for your tech school. Well, that's ridiculous, you know? So of course, I don't want them to feel like the system is a crutch. I often encourage them that any of those benefits really need to be a bonus. They need to be an add-on that you have a backup plan and a backup plan to the backup plan because when those services don't show up for you or it ends, that you do know how to provide for yourself. But being someone who is a student of how trauma affects them, that is the part where we can say all those things all day. But when you come up against a kid's trauma that is absolutely blocking them, it's not as easy as just a couple of words to encourage them in in a certain way. So you know, that trauma piece is super important to always acknowledge for anybody working with our youth, because sometimes that block is there. I look at the seeds that I'm planting right now, that they're really going to flourish in their 30s, because that's when they will be sort of their brain will be in a place where it can function a little bit more like an adult, whereas it's not able to in their early 20s because of the trauma that they have suffered. And again, that's not across the board, but there's a lot of kids that applies to. This essentially goes back to each one of these people are unique. You have Mm -hmm. to sort the ones with trauma, with those with bad backgrounds, and sort the ones with certain kinds of intelligence and other kinds of intelligence. They really are unique. That's one of the communications I make to all my people I come in contact with, is each person's unique and you've got to find your own way But when you have trauma, it's very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You have young people who've had a lot of trauma and they happen to be very resilient and they're able to manage their way through it and adapt and move forward. And you have others who 
who just really don't have that resilience and they struggle more and, and you have to figure out who's who in order to know what type of support to give them. I've been searching for some of the reasons why I was able to get escape velocity and get out of the situation. And my, my two books, I struggle with it, but I come across some ideas and it's, it's a very difficult thing to find out what makes, and it is a combination of some sort of genealogical and environmental experience, but I don't know the answers yet. Yeah. Would you say that helping young people build coping skills is really an art that people learn as adults, as people who work with these young people, that you learn as you're working with the youth and it's a skill set yourself that you can build as far as this art of helping young people, recognizing when they need extra support, looking for and being able to find opportunities to give to them so that they can practice and so forth. Does that seem like a fair word to use that it's an art? I actually am sitting here giggling to myself because years ago when I got into this work, that was one of the things that led me here was I was looking within myself of like, what is my gift to the world? Like, what can I do? And communication, interpersonal communication. And my husband calls me the teen whisperer, like being able to provide that kind of special attention to the detail, the crafting, like honing your craft of how to talk with trauma teens. It is, I do feel like it's my art and it's very affirming to hear someone call it that. I definitely see it that way for myself. My biggest hope as I continue in this work long term is not to just keep doing it myself, but to figure out how to share it with others so that more people are able to have that art and that craft to be able to use with the teens that are in front of them. Yes, I also agree. Helping youth develop coping skills can be considered an art. Coping skills are essential for individuals to manage stress, trauma, and adversity in their lives. However, developing effective coping skills is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and what works for one individual may not work for another. Effective coping skills are often tailored to an individual's specific needs and circumstances. For example, some individuals may benefit from mindfulness practices or relaxation techniques, while others may benefit from physical activity or creative expression. In working with youth to develop coping skills, it's important to consider their unique experiences, strengths, and challenges. It requires creativity, empathy, and an understanding of the individual's needs and preferences. Therefore, helping youth develop coping skills can be considered an art as it requires a nuanced and individualized approach to support their well-being. Right. And all of that, it's not something that just anybody can step in and do. Like Erin, you're the teen whisperer, right? You have a natural ability to communicate and support young people. Not everybody can just step in and do that. So if you're hiring (laughs) and you want to have somebody on your staff who can do that, you got to make sure that they have that knack for it. You don't want somebody coming in and just saying, oh, get over it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you just got to suck it up and move on. That's not what these young people need. Right. Lynn, I think it's an art, but I do believe, and I've been suffering, struggling with this for a couple of decades now, to find some answers as to some, there's some basics in this as well as art. You just can't have art, I think. And that's why I really appreciate it. In fact, that money back guarantee, if you read my new book called The Island of the Four Peas, whether there isn't some sort of basic series of words which you give people, some which relate to certain of the words and certain not of the words, but just certain words you give people which allow them to cope better. And that's what I tried to get across in this book. And it's a fable. 
And I'm not against fables, you know, who moved my cheese and Dr. Seuss and right. lovers travels and so forth gets points, of course, somewhat better than, you know, just telling people how to do it. So I'd appreciate and it. Get your I am so excited to read your book. I'm writing it down. Can I find it on Amazon? <laughs> it's on Amazon, Island of the Four okay. Keys. It's a two and a half hour listen. The awesome. one did a wonderful job with six different voices. And I think you just have a lot of fun with it. I'm excited to listen to it. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. I'll also make sure that we add your books to our book and movie list on our Aging Out Institute website too. I have started a course called Life Design at the university. I do believe that even freshmen, you know, were obviously, you know, found what they want to do still are, should be given the opportunity to think about themselves early in their lives rather than just the academic skills they might accumulate at a school like a university. So a life design is a big new field, I think, and you're finding it the finest universities like Stanford and Harvard have launched them and have been very well received. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I know we need to end our time together, which I'm very sad about because I've been really enjoying this conversation. But why don't I give everybody just a last chance to share any other piece of advice that you might have thinking about our listeners, folks who work with these young people aging out of foster care, any final piece of advice that you want to share to them? And I'll just start, maybe Aaron, back to you. I would just say in getting to that point where those intangibles, building resiliency, overcoming optimism, to get there, I think that the road, I think that the map is acknowledging and validating where they are. Because I like to say, be where you are and move when you're ready. If we want them to move down that map, we want them to get to that place of resiliency, then we have to meet them where they are. And I think that acknowledging and validating their experiences, not dismissing them, I think that's a huge, important piece to them overcoming. And then with that, the trust and the relationship building, because the more that they are able to trust who we are and why we are there, the more open they're going to be with us. And then we have that ability to lead them and use the tools that we have to support them. Wonderful. Thank you. Cheryl, how about if I go to you? Any final thoughts? Yes, ma'am. So if you're a former foster youth, it's important to know that you're not alone and that many others have gone through similar experiences. It's normal to feel a range of emotions, including sadness, anger, and frustration, and it's okay to seek help when you need it. Some pieces of advice that I have is one, build a support network, surround yourself with people who care about you and who you can trust that can include your foster family, mentors, friends, or other supportive adults. Two, take care of yourself. Make sure to prioritize your physical and emotional well-being. This can include getting enough sleep, eating healthy foods, engaging in activities that bring you joy, and seeking counseling. Three, find ways to express yourself, whether it's going through writing, art, music, or another form of expression. Finding ways to express yourself can be a helpful way to process your emotions and experiences. Or set goals for yourself. Setting goals can help you stay focused and motivated and can give you a sense of purpose and direction, whether it's academic, career, or personal goals. Setting achievable goals can help you build confidence and resilience. Five, advocate for yourself. You have a right to be heard and to have your needs and concerns addressed. Don't be afraid to speak up and advocate for yourself, whether it's in meetings with your social worker, school staff, or other adults in your life, or even with the government. Remember, you are a valuable and deserving individual. You have the potential to achieve great things. With the right support and resources, you can overcome 
the challenges you have faced and build a bright future for yourself. And I also just wanted to share a couple of nonprofits because a lot of people don't realize like all the support that is available to them. There's a new HUD housing voucher that's available to youth aging out. And then there's a, a nonprofit called One Simple Wish that helps youth aging out with rent, bills, groceries. They must provide proof they're either in care or were in care. And then I Foster helps with youth aging out. And then there's Foster alumni mentors. Kimberly Raff has been amazing, even to mentor me personally. And then there's a, a nonprofit called Pivotal. It's an awesome program helping foster youth in California and 13 other states from middle school until they no longer need support. They do mentoring, have scholarships, and so much more. And then, of course, my nonprofit, fundfc.org. We provide a mentoring, but if you reach out, you fill out the referral form. And there's also information if you're a, a potential mentee that it shows the process. But we really adapt to whatever the needs are. And we really just try to do whatever it takes to help them get on their feet. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. We'll be sure to put the links to everybody's the books and your organizations on the podcast section of our website when we post it. But I also, Cheryl, want to thank you for mentioning all those nonprofits and supports for young people aging out of foster care. Pivotal actually was an organization that won at one of our awards last year. So I'm definitely familiar with all of those. So I know we need to wrap up. I want to hand things over to Ed, though, Ed, and give you a chance to share any final pieces of advice that you might have. I just want to say thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Lynn. What we need more of is Aaron's, Lynn's, and Cheryl's in this world. I made my morning <laughs> listening to you, what you're doing for foster youth. My, what I, little things that I do, I basically have focused myself on grabbing the 17-year-old who has every possibility except financial support and giving him the financial support that he, that he or she needs. But this has just been a great morning for me, and I really have enjoyed you. covered the, the waterfront. It is a very difficult job, and I just hope that the force will be with all of you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ed. I appreciate that. And thank you all again so much for participating in the podcast. For those of you who've listened to the end, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We hope you're enjoying these topic-focused podcasts that we've built into our itinerary. We do put these out on the website and also pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts every couple of weeks or so. So just go to agingoutinstitute.org to get started if you've not listened to many of our podcasts and you just click the podcast link and you'll find them all there. Thank you all very much. Until next time.